Well, may God's grace and peace be with you. It is a pleasure to be with you once again. And if you have a Bible handy, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 1. And there we will find our sermon text for today. When I was a child, my mother and father received in the mail a set of books. I believe they were from Reader's Digest. And they had something to do with Bible studies or commentaries on the Bible. We were a religious family. We did not attend church very often, but my parents had interest in the things of God. My mother especially wanted my brother and I to have some understanding of the Bible. And so she would sit us at the kitchen table and she would read portions of these commentaries that we received in the mail. I remember they were red books and my brother and I liked to thumb through them. We took great interest in the section on the book of Revelation. For one reason, we knew it would throw our mother off. And for another reason, we, we liked it because of all of the mention of dragons and beasts and the war that we could see there. My fascination with the book of Revelation began at a very young age. And through the years, I wanted to come to some understanding of the book. Uh, my father would take my brother and I camping and hunting out in East Texas. And I remember stopping in donut shops out in places in East Texas, and there would be racks of tracks and different writings warning about the end times, and there were all kinds of little cartoons that went along with those messages. And my brother and I would pick those up off of the shelf, and we'd read them and make fun of them. We never took them seriously because we thought, how seriously can you take something that looks this silly. We were young, but we had some, I guess, some sense about ourselves that maybe there's more to the book of Revelation than just what's happening in the daily news. So my fascination with the book of Revelation began at an early age, and it took a long time before I was around any teachers or any pastors or ministers who felt courageous enough to enter into a study of the book of Revelation. And since that, over the, the last few years, uh, really the last 20 years or so, I've been around some good teachers and had some good references and resource material that I think have helped, my, uh, helped shape my understanding of the book of Revelation. What I would like to do today is just give you one snapshot from the book, and the snapshot has to do with Jesus Christ. And as you see, I want us to focus on the glorious vision of the, of the majestic Christ that John saw on the Isle of Patmos. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that this book is about Jesus. It's about the glorious Lamb of God. And the main storyline running through the book is about this victorious Lamb that has overcome the world. And so John is introduced to this vision of Jesus in chapter 1 on the Isle of Patmos. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I do want to share with you some interesting things that I came across concerning the different ways people think about the book of Revelation. And it might surprise you to hear some of these. For example, Martin Luther did not consider the book of Revelation to be apostolic or inspired. He said that Christ is neither taught or known in this book. 
John Calvin never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Both of these reformers were suspicious of the book because they felt that the symbolism in the book somehow veiled Christ to the average Christian. Friedrich Nietzsche said that this book is the, quote, the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. I don't know if you know much about Friedrich Nietzsche, but he was an atheist who was antagonistic towards the Christian faith especially. And if you want to read something that is vindictive, you might read some of his outbursts in his writings. Another critic said of the book of Revelation that it is, quote, the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. <laughs> well, despite all of these controversial and confusing views on the book of Revelation, you should know that the book of Revelation is basically an unveiling. It is a revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, an uncovering of the grace and glory of the Lamb of God. Our sermon text for today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. God's Word reads, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And that is the word of the Lord. So travel with me, if you will, to the island of Patmos. We'll have to travel in the Spirit. It is the Lord's Day. And see if you can put yourself in the situation in which we find the Apostle John. Here John is, an elderly man in exile. After years of ministry, after years of bearing the cross, after years of shepherding God's people, he finds himself in exile on the island of Patmos. He's been given a one-way ticket to this island, and it's not a vacation, it's a prison. If you know anything about John's life and ministry from the New Testament Scriptures, you know that the last time John 
records for us that he saw Jesus was at the very end of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. In a story in which Jesus and Peter and John were all making their way down a beach. And John sees Jesus in that moment, the Word made flesh, the God-man, appearing very much like every other Jewish man. Let's say he was five foot eight or nine. Maybe a stout man as he was a builder. He's walking with his friend Peter and that's what John sees. Fast forward several decades. John is now an old man and he's on the beach on the island of Patmos. And once again, he sees Jesus. But this time he doesn't see Jesus as merely a five foot eight Jewish man on a beach. He sees Jesus in all of his glory and majesty. Interesting about the story is as John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he says that he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. And he turns around to see the voice. And when he turns around to see the voice, he sees not just the voice, but the Word of God, the Logos, Jesus, the Word made flesh. But now he sees Him in all of His glory and majesty. And so things have changed. Things are quite different. Imagine the shock and the awe of that experience of one who had seen Jesus when He was veiled. One who had seen Jesus, the God-man, veiled in flesh, but now he sees the glory and majesty of Jesus. Remember Jesus had said to His apostles before He left, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come and take you to be with Me in My Father's house. Well, that was a long time ago. And now that John is an old man, perhaps those promises were beginning to weaken in some way. Perhaps he was wondering, will these promises ever be fulfilled and realized? And, and suddenly they are on the island of Patmos in the most unlikely of places. And Jesus has come to him. John is here because of tribulation, because of conflict and difficulty. He is in exile. He is alone. And why is he here? He is here because of the ministry of the gospel. After all of these years, this is where gospel ministry has led him. It has not led him to this comfy and cozy retirement. It has not led him to a place of peace and tranquility. It has led him into isolation, imprisonment. And what do we find John doing, even in the midst of these dire circumstances? We find John worshiping on the Lord's Day. If I could give a word of encouragement to you, regardless of your age, but I will say especially to those of you who are older, take great comfort and encouragement from our brother John that he never gave up on Christ. He never gave up on Jesus. He never offered up an excuse. I can't worship because I'm in exile and the island is rocky and it's not very comfortable. It was none of that. It was in the Spirit, on the Lord's day, worshiping in spirit and in truth. He remembered the words of Jesus that the Father is actually seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So contrary to our evangelical culture where everyone thinks that 
It's man who is seeking God. And we must accommodate the seeker, meaning the human seeker. John is saying, no, we must accommodate the divine seeker. It is the Father who is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that is what John is doing. This idea, the imagery that you find in this story of John heard a voice behind him, this is not the first time in the Scriptures that that kind of imagery or that language is used. You could go all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve. Remember, they were in the garden and they heard a voice behind them. Adam, where are you? You could go all the way to Isaiah in Judea. And Isaiah says that you will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. John hears this old familiar voice, and yet it is also unfamiliar. The old familiar voice of Jesus has changed, not for the worse, but for the better. And now he hears it in a more glorious tone. John turns to see that voice, and he sees Jesus. In his... In his book, Reversed Thunder, which is sort of a commentary, a book of impressions uh, or reflections on the book of Revelation, Eugene Peterson says that there are several elements of the Son of Man depicted in this revelation of Jesus in chapter 1. And when you see the phrase Son of Man, that should take you back to the book of Ezekiel where the phrase is used multiple times, but more specifically, it should take you back to the book of Daniel. What does John see on this day when he turns and he sees the voice speaking to him and he turns and he sees Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man? What does he see? He sees what Daniel saw in a vision. In Daniel 7, Uh, In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I'll just give you a a bit of this for the flavor. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Daniel saw that vision of the Son of Man rising up in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, to the throne of God, He says that he was anxious. His spirit was anxious within him, and the visions of his head alarmed him. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John had a very similar reaction to the vision of Jesus Christ. He fell on the ground as though dead. Well, Eugene Peterson mentions that there is an interesting symmetrical arrangement of the images in this vision, and see if you can get your heart and mind around them even now. If you take the the first element and the seventh element, you have a white head and you have a shining face. What does this represent to us? It represents the forgiveness and the blessing that come to us through Christ. 
If you take the second element and the sixth element of the vision, the eyes and the mouth, what does this represent? It represents communication, revelation, relationship, as God sees and speaks to us through Christ. Element three and five, we have the feet and the hands. What does this represent to us? Stability and maturity and security coming to us from God through Jesus Christ. But notice that right at the center of the vision, at the centerpiece of all of this, is the voice of God, the voice of God in Christ. The Word of God is central. For God is speaking to His people through His Word. This vision of Jesus is a vision of Jesus exalted and glorified. This is the post-resurrection ascension, ascended Jesus. And in this vision, what does John see? He sees finally, once and for all, the reality of who Jesus is. He's not merely a man, although He is a man. And He's not merely a carpenter or a builder, although He was those things as well. He's not merely a rabbi or a prophet. No, He's more than that. John sees in this vision that Jesus is the true and better priest. We know that because He's dressed in a robe with a sash around His chest. He is the true and better King, and we know that because His hair is white and His eyes are like blazing fire. He has the wisdom and the demeanor of the King. And He is the true and better prophet. Out of His mouth comes a sharp sword and a roaring voice. John sees in this vision the reality of who Jesus Christ is. This is a glorious and majestic vision of Jesus. So now John sees Jesus as this radiant, exalted, and glorified Savior. Now, I want you to notice something that's happening in this story, or in this vision. This vision is full of of images that help us understand some of the truth about who Jesus is. It's pulling in sights and sounds from the Old Testament Scriptures. And we see in here that Jesus is, in fact, the true and better Son of Man from Daniel's vision and from Ezekiel's vision. We see the glorious and gracious vision of Jesus Christ here. And notice that He doesn't remain aloof and distant, although He is transcendent. We see Him doing something that He's always done in all of the pictures we see of Him throughout the Gospels. I said to you that John's response to this vision was that he fell on the ground as though dead. He's terrified. He's afraid of what he's just seen. For all that we know in the Gospel of John, for example, there's no indication that John was ever afraid of Jesus or that he feared Jesus, although other people did. But now this vision of Jesus strikes fear into his heart. He falls on the ground as though dead. And here's what I want you to see. Notice this very interesting detail. John says that he laid his right hand on me. 
And he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Now, keep in context what John had said earlier about the right hand of Jesus Christ and what was in his hand. In the vision, the Son of Man is holding seven stars in his right hand. And yet when he sees his friend, the Apostle John, fall on the ground as though dead, what does he do? With that same right hand, he reaches down and touches him. John, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Now, I don't know all of you as well as I would like to know you, but in the times that we've been together, I've been able to piece together a few things from you, and hopefully you've been able to piece together a few things uh, from me about the way we look at the world and the way we feel about life and, and the things we experience. And one of the things that I've detected among you and that maybe you've detected from me is that sometimes we wrestle with fears. It comes out in our prayer requests. It comes out in the, in the things we talk about, the concerns we have about our nation, the concerns we have about families, the concerns we have about our health, the concerns we have about each other. So I'm not getting on to you. If you, if you struggle with fear, if you have anxiety and concerns, I'm not getting on to you for that. I'm saying, hey, I'm with you on that. And John is too. We, we can relate to John in this, in this story. That there are times that we gather for worship and maybe not in our bodies, but in our hearts, we simply fall before the Lord as if we were dead. We just don't feel like we have any life in us. And we feel the crushing weight of our circumstances and the burdens and the pressures of life. And we're afraid. We're afraid. It's a natural response. We're afraid of so many things. And we need the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, to come to us and lay his hand on us and say, Hey, it's going to be all right. You don't have to be afraid. And those aren't empty words. Jesus said to John, Fear not. Why? And the answer is because Jesus is the first and the last. And he's the bookends of human history. He is the bookends of your life story. He's the bookends of the story of this congregation. He is the first and the last. There's nothing before him or after him. So everything happens within his purview. It happens in front of him. And then he says, I am the living one. So you see the contrast there. John falls down as though he were dead, and then he is reminded that while you may feel dead, you're not dead. And by the way, you can't be dead because you're in me and I'm the living one. John, your life is tied to my life. I died, and behold, I'm alive forever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so John is comforted by the Good Shepherd once again comforted by the grace and the truth and the power and the glory of the Good Shepherd who reminds him that he is sovereign over all things, even life and death. So there's no need to fear. There's no need to collapse in terror. There's no need to cave in under the pressure 
But there is a real need for us to keep our hearts and minds fixed on Jesus Christ. I'll confess this to you because uh, we've grown to love each other and know each other a bit. And perhaps it will help you in some way. I don't want to preach myself at all, but Christ does, Lord. But I will say this, that in my own life, I know this to be true, that in the moments when I am the most anxious and fearful and filled with worry or even doubt, it's in the moments that I have turned away from Christ, that I've allowed pressing needs in my life or circumstances to eclipse who Jesus is. That if I were in John's sandals on the Isle of Patmos, I might have been looking at the rocks and the sea and the chains and I might have forgotten some of the truths of the gospel. Perhaps John was at risk of doing that as well. And then Jesus comes and breaks through the clouds, breaks through the darkness, and He shines brighter than everything. And in this moment, John is reminded of the truth and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ is bigger than Rome. Christ is greater than Caesar. His church is more powerful than Patmos in the island of exile. His church is still free because it's in His hand. Christ holds in His right hand the universal church. That's what seven stars are about. The church Catholic. And Christ keeps her safe in His hand. And so I'm comforted by this. But I just confess to you that sometimes I'm distracted by the stuff and the things of life and this vision begins to fade. And we need the Spirit and the Word of God and the worship of God's people on the Lord's Day to help reorient us and remind us that there is far more going on in the world than just our little set of circumstances right here, right now. And that's the good news of the Gospel. So I love the fact that John is an older saint. And he would tell you, he's an old man at this point. Remember, on that beach, when Jesus spoke to Peter in John 21, Jesus told Peter about the end of his life, that, he would, that Peter would be taken and dressed by others, and he would be tied up, and he would be led where he didn't want to go, and he would be lifted up. Jesus indicated that Peter would die by crucifixion, and Peter is alarmed by that, and he notices John is trailing behind, and so he says, well, okay, I know what's going to happen to me, but what about this guy? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. So the rumor circulated that John was never going to die, that he was going to live until Jesus came again. And I imagine that many people in those days were beginning to wonder as he aged and aged and aged and finally found himself on the Isle of Patmos. People might have been wondering, is this guy ever going to pass away? In one sense, John did remain until Jesus came again. Not in the grand sense that people expected, but John remained until Jesus came again to him. So I want to encourage you, no matter how old or young you happen to be, I want to encourage you to keep your hearts and your minds fixed on Jesus Christ. He will come to you. 
He will come to you. He will come to your aid. He will come to your rescue. He will come to help you. He will come to comfort and counsel you. He will come to remind you of His majesty and glory. Jesus reaches down and He touches John and He teaches John to center His life on Him again and again. In other words, don't think about your exile. Don't think about your locality. Don't think about your personal circumstances so much. Don't dwell on your aches and your pains. And don't worry about the context of your culture. Don't make those things ultimate. Jesus Christ alone is ultimate. And that's what this vision teaches us. Well, John had no chance of of uh, answering the question that I'm about to pose to you, but it's an echo that comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. John certainly knew the answer to this question, but I think for our purposes today, it's good to be reminded not only of the question, but also of the answer. Jesus alone is sovereign over all things, including life and death and everything in between. And that is the truth of what this vision teaches us. And so once we come to believe that truth and get our hearts and minds around it, then when we are asked this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Then we can answer with faith in Jesus Christ that I am not my own, but I belong both in body and in soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the source of our comfort. The Heidelberg question is not the source of our comfort. Jesus Christ is the source of our comfort. And so I encourage you today, no matter where you are, and no matter what your struggles and circumstances, as real and pressing as they may be, I'm not asking you to ignore them, but I'm asking you to look at them in light of who Jesus is. And perhaps in the midst of your discouragements, your fears and anxieties, you will find real comfort coming to you once again, fresh and new, from our Lord Jesus Christ, who was dead, but is now alive and lives forever and ever. Let us pray together.